Is that some crazy stuff or what? Did you see me up there? I was one of the weightlifters. Why do you guys laugh? I, I was up there. Okay, maybe not. No, I wasn't. Good to have you with us this morning. Welcome to Desert Breeze. Courageous Calling is our current teaching series. We're talking about a healthy Christian. What does a healthy Christian look like? And if you have your Bibles, you can turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We'll look at that whole chapter, working through the book of 2 Timothy. The Apostle Paul is awaiting trial and certain execution. He will have his head cut off, martyred for his faith. And he's passing on the ministry torch to young Pastor Timothy. This second letter reads like a coach's halftime motivational or instructional talk. And so thus far, we have looked at really the Christian's call to courage. That was chapter 1. And then last weekend, we looked at the Christian's call to service. That was chapter 2. And this weekend, we're looking at the Christian's call to persevere. That's chapter 3. And then we'll wrap up the teaching series next week, a week before Easter. The Christian's call to finish strong. And that will be chapter 4. I'd encourage you to read ahead for that particular teaching. So let's talk about persevere. It's easier to quit than to persevere. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. It's easier to be lazy and eat junk food than to exercise and watch your diet. How many agree with that? Unless you're 16 years old and you can eat whatever you want, and that's frustrating to watch that. <laughs> Wouldn't you agree with that? Yeah. It's easier to watch TV or surf the internet than to read your Bible and pray. It's easier to be distant and detached than to join a life group and get involved in ministry. It's easier to walk out of the room during an argument than to, to stay and work through the conflict. It's easier to do what you want with your life than to surrender it completely to God and live for His glory. It's easier to drift downstream morally with the culture than to swim upstream against it. It's easier to quit than to persevere. But listen to me. It may be easier to quit than to persevere, but the cost, the cost will eventually always, always outweigh and overtake the temporary pleasure physically, spiritually, relationally, and morally. Came across a story about 45 years ago. It had an impact on my life, a story of R.U. Darby. The story was titled, Three Feet Short of Gold. R.U. Darby's uncle had gold fever, so he staked his claim and started digging and found a vein of gold. It's a true story. So he covered it up and returned home to raise the money for the machinery needed to bring it to the surface. They raised the money, and Darby traveled with his uncle back to the site to make their fortune. Things started well, and before long, they had enough to clear their debts. They were excited. Everything from here on would be profit, and things were looking good. Then the supply of gold stopped. The vein had disappeared. After a while, they quit in frustration and sold their machinery to a junk man for a few hundred dollars. After they went home in disappointment, the junk man hired a mining engineer that discovered that the vein of gold continued just, just three feet from where they had stopped digging. Darby and his uncle had stopped three feet short of one of the richest veins of gold in Colorado history. The junk man went on to make millions. Galatians 6, 9, it says, Do not grow weary in well-doing. 
because in due season, you will reap a harvest if you do not give up. Do not grow weary. Do not grow weary in well-doing because in due season, in due season, you will reap a harvest if you do not give up. The Apostle Paul is going to teach us three things we need if we are going to persevere in difficult times or perilous times. That's where we're headed with our study here this morning. Before we read our texts, work through our notes, let's, once again, let's bow our heads, let's pray, let's ask for God's help. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's take a moment. So, Father God, we are delighted to be here today. We love your presence. We are overwhelmed with deep gratitude that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we have been called to persevere as followers of Christ. We thank you that you fulfill in us the very things that you require of us. And though we live in a culture that demands instant success and instant solutions and instant gratification physically and spiritually and relationally and morally, teach us, teach us through the study of your word, the work of your Holy Spirit to not grow weary in well-doing And to see more clearly the blessing of those who persevere under trials, it tells us in James 1.12, for when they have stood the test, they will receive the crown of life, fullness of life, which you have promised to those who love you. We pray these things in Jesus' beautiful name and everyone said, amen. Take a look at your text here. We're going to read through the text, the chapter 3 completely. I want you to keep your Bibles open after that because we'll be referring back to the text. And uh, as we work through our notes, chapter 3, verse 1, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Does that sound like our culture? Yeah, absolutely. Having the appearance of godless, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Notice what he says here. He says, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women. Women were the most vulnerable in that culture burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth, just as Janes and Jambres opposed Moses. So these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. He's going to transition here. So he said, avoid such people, but now notice what he says here in verse 10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, and my steadfastness. This is the Apostle Paul speaking to young Pastor Timothy, speaking to all of us through God's word. Verse 11, my, you've followed my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured Yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, 
but for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. These next two verses are my wife's favorite verses in the Bible. All scripture is God breathed, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. So, a lot there, good stuff, here we go. Look at your notes. So if you are going to persevere in perilous times, look at verse one again. Notice he says, but understand this. Understand, you've got to understand this. That in the last times, last days, what, when are the last days? Are we living in the last days? When did the last days begin? Jesus' first coming, the end, Jesus' second coming. So we're living in the last days, but we're really, really living in the last days, even more so than ever before. We see this happening. We will see ebbs and flows of this, certainly, in history. But he says, understand, understand this, that in the last days, there will be times of difficulty. Some translations say perilous times. The word difficulty, you can see that on your notes. The Greek here means hard to deal with, dangerous, fierce, savage, same word is used to describe the demon-possessed men in Matthew 8, 28, where it says they were so fierce that no one could pass that way. Here's the point that I want you to understand. And this is what I think he's wanting us to understand. Life is going to get so difficult for you, you're going to want to throw in the towel. You want to just call it quits. You're going to face perilous times. I love the way that the Bible uh, is in touch with reality, and he's he just flat out saying, hey, it's going to get so crazy hard in your life that you're going to want to quit. You're going to want to give up. And so as he goes through this list of characteristics of what we're going to be surrounded by, he then gives him some counsel on how to persevere. So how do I not give up? How do I not throw in the towel? How do I not become overwhelmed by the trials and the difficulties and the people all around us, and he's gonna tell us that right here. Here's the first thing that he gives us. Avoid godless and ungodly people. That's verses one through nine. No less than 19 characteristics are mentioned in this list in verses one through nine. And notice what he says. It's, it's interesting. He says, avoid such people. That was verse, verse five. That's, that's his counsel. Now, now, if you're familiar with what we studied last weekend in the last three verses, 24, 25, and 26, last three verses of chapter two, you're gonna think, wait, 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 wait a minute. This almost seems like a contradiction to what he said in chapter 2. Let me read chapter 2, verses uh, 24 through 26. Listen to what he says. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. That doesn't sound like avoiding people, does it? Correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. That was the last three verses of chapter two. And now he goes through this list of people. And he says, avoid them. What? Okay, what am I supposed to do? Well, I, I, think he's, I think he's beautifully helping us to see we gotta make a distinction between the type of people that we interact with. And this is what I've learned through the years even as a pastor is that humility will ask honest questions. Pride refuses to hear the answers. 
And you need to know the difference between humility and pride. When I interact with someone that has humility, I, yeah, I'm going to interact with them. And I'm going to help them. I'm going to help them to come to repentance, to see Christ more clearly. But when I discover that a person has pride, where don't confuse me with the facts, I've already made up my mind, they want to argue. If you argue with them, all you do is galvanize them in that pride. And he says, avoid such people. So you need to make a distinction between those people that are, that are humble and those people that are proud. Humility will ask honest questions, but pride refuses to hear the answers. And so really what he's saying is don't follow the lead or seek the advice of, of proud, unrepentant people. Really, because he's talking about perseverance and he's talking about who should influence our lives and, and those things. Yeah, we need to be influencers of others, but be careful of proud people. Stay away from people that are full of themselves and they're proud and they're unrepentant, but humble, repentant people, yes, pour into their lives. Make that distinction. It tells us in Psalm 1, 1 through 3, it says, blessed is the man that does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly or stand in the way of the sinners or sits in the seat of the scornful but his delight is in God's word and he meditates on it day and night. So he's even in that, he's just saying, hey, you're blessed, total fulfillment, complete well-being when you stay away from these type of people. Don't let them influence you. So make that distinction. And so in this text, let me walk through this on your notes. He goes and helps us to really understand these type of people that we need to avoid. And first of all, on your notes, you can see their lives are totally self-centered and self-absorbed. So, I mean, there's no less than 19 characteristics. And I thought, wow, that's, that's a lot. So how would I summarize this? And the more I looked at this list, the more I realized, the more I realized he's talking about self-absorption and self-centeredness, which is the essence of sin. I mean, this is the essence of sin that started in the Garden of Eden in, cha in Genesis chapter 3. Okay, now listen to me. This is how it works. This is what happens. This is why you see these kind of characteristics currently in our culture. See, you and I were meant to walk in the garden in the cool of the day and to look into the eyes of our maker and receive all of the acceptance, security, and significance that we would ever need from him. Be filled up with his glory, the glory of God. But we, we as Adam and Eve did, we thought we were smarter than God. We thought... We're more loving than God, and we turned away from God. Now, this is what happens when we do that. That spiritual alienation becomes a psychological alienation. I'm immediately empty of that acceptance, security, significance that I get from him. And therefore, that spiritual alienation leads to psychological alienation, which leads to social alienation. I begin to look to created things and people to give me that acceptance, security, and significance that I should be getting from God, and it creates... This list for people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slant. That's self-centeredness. That's self-absorption. By the way, our culture, in, in many ways, in many ways, encourages that self-absorption and self-centeredness. And, and that's the manifestation of that. And so when you walk away from God, who's the source of, of, of his glory and acceptance and security, significance, you're left to your own efforts to try to fill that emptiness up inside. And everything and everybody becomes a means to an end. Your job, your relationships. 
And that's why we have that in our relationships and with our job and with our people. I know we're supposed to be kind, and so we, we try to be kind, and we put on a happy face and do all those things. But underneath, we have all of this going on. It's because we're trying to get it from created things rather than the creator. Have you ever noticed when, when you are in a hurry or running late that everyone is either driving too fast or too slow, and everybody out there is an idiot? Am I just confessing my own sins here? Those idiots? Because, of course, I'm the standard by which everyone should drive. And I'm the star of the show, and everyone else is a supporting cast member. Doesn't that, that's, that sounds like self-absorption and self-centeredness, but that's how we try to live out our lives. So my wife and I, were, we were uh, coming back. We went to a Gospel Coalition conference in Indianapolis this week. We uh, came back to Phoenix Wednesday evening, my mom came and picked us up. I was driving, my mom was in the back seat, my sister is sitting, or my, my wife is sitting next to me. And, um, and I missed the turn coming out of the airport. That place is crazy. Do you guys agree with that? It's like, man, I'm lost. I'm just doing loops. Trying to, how do you get out of this place? So I finally get out, but I'm on the wrong road. I'm obviously very agitated, kind of like, Urgh. And my wife, and she's done this a few times, but she just very, very quietly, very calmly just put her hand on my arm as I'm driving. Just puts her hand on my arm. I'm like. <laughs> and she doesn't say a thing, but I'm thinking, I'm the idiot. <laughs> and I want to go like this. Get your hand off of me. <laughs> But I know better because that just shows that I'm a bigger idiot than ever. <laughs> but, it's, but, but she just, you know, a gentle answer turns away wrath. A harsh word stirs up anger. She's so gentle. She's like, well, I was like, uh. I mean, I, 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 it's just, I go, oh, gee. Why am I such a jerk? Why am I in such a big hurry? What's going on? And, and so we have those moments in our life where we, just, we forget what we have in him. And I, why are you in such a big hurry to try to get home? I know we just finished up a four-hour ride on a, you know, on a plane and all of that other things, but just chill. I mean, that's what I'm saying to myself. I'm trying to talk myself down a little bit off the cliff there. And, and that's, that's that self-centeredness and self-absorption. Take a look at what he says also. He says, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Verses 5 through 9, that's the next fill in the blank on your notes. That's very similar to what he's saying in verse 7. Did you notice? Always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. So you're filling your cranium full of information about God and morality, and, but you don't even know God. You have no relationship with God. You're really smart when it comes to the Bible, but you don't, you don't know God. He's, he's talking about someone who engages in religious activity without any life change. He's, he's talking about this disparity between our beliefs, what we believe, and how we behave. Jesus described it in Matthew 15, 18. He says, these people, they worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They're just going through the motions. They just become an older version of what they were before. Are you becoming an older version of what you were before? He says, having an appearance of godliness, you go to church, you read your Bible, you pray, you go to small group, you do all these things, and yet 
You're just an older version of what you were before. I was thinking of an analogy here of how we can understand this, and I was thinking of the difference between fake plants and real plants. You know, you put a fake plant in the corner and come back in a year, and it's, hey. <laughs> looks good. Other than a lot of dust, we live in the valley here, so you get a lot of dust on it, but it's like, hey, looks good. You put a real plant in the corner and come back in a year, and it's dead. Why? Because you're a murderer of plants. That's why. Because it needs consistent, regular care of sunlight and water and vitamins and pruning. You know, you know fake plants, they, can, they, they kind of look good, but there's no life in them. But, oh, my goodness, there's nothing like a real plant. But those real plants, they need care. And we treat our faith like we can just leave it in a corner somewhere, and we will be fine. I talk to people a lot, and I'll say, so are you a believer? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so when did you come to faith? Oh, I, I, I signed the card in the church, or I walked the aisle, or I got dunked in the tank. And I said, okay, okay. That, what, was that about five years ago? Yeah, yeah. So what about now? Do you, do you go to church? Oh, no, no, no. I can, I can still be a Christian and not go to church. Oh, really? So do you read your Bible? Well, it's, it's been a while, but no, not really. Do you ever pray? Well, yeah, I pray for my food. Well, that's good. How about outside of that? Do you, do you interact with God? And I'm thinking, you kind of missed the whole point here. You're either just a fake plant, you have the appearance of godliness but denying its power, or you're a real plant that's dying because you're not taking care of yourself and your faith. And that's what he's saying, having the appearance of godliness but denying, but denying its power. Here's the next couple fill-in-the-blanks on your notes. These are the opposite of loving God and loving others, loving God and loving others. Really what he's describing here in this description, these first nine verses, it's total opposite of loving God and loving others. Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? <laughs> I love that. They came to him and said, Jesus, what's the most important? Why are, why are we here? What's life all about? What should be the goal of our life? What should I be living for? And oftentimes I hear people say, well, I was made for this, and it's some kind of creative thing. And I understand maybe they were wired up to, to be, you know, a great singer or a great athlete or any number of things. But, but actually the Bible would say, yeah, 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 I've gifted you for all those things, but ultimately you were made for this. This is what Jesus is saying. No, you were made for this, Matthew 22, 34 through 40. No, you were made to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. What I've found in my own life, and I, I think you'll find the same in your life, the longer you walk in vital union and communion with Christ, basking in his love and truth, the more you will grow in your capacity to love God and, and others. You will become less and less self-absorbed and, and, and self-centered because you are more and more captivated and characterized by the love and truth of God. See, humility isn't thinking less of yourself, is, but it's thinking of yourself less. You're, you're not trying to fill up the emptiness inside because it, you're filled up with the glory of God, the acceptance, security, significance, all that you need. Therefore, out of that abundance, you're not looking to your job or the people in your life as a means to fill up that emptiness. You're filled up. You're able to give you're able to honor God with your life. I love Romans 5, 7 through 8. 
It says, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Maybe you're familiar with verse 8. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for you. He died for me. When we didn't want to have anything to do with him, he came after us with his love and died for us. Died in our place for our sins to reconcile us to the Father. And so, so we don't... We don't repent to get his love. We have his love, therefore we repent. When we see ourselves kind of behaving in a way that's inconsistent with our beliefs, we come back running into his arms of love. We're not earning his love. We have his love. We have forgotten about his love. See, it's the goodness of God. Romans 2, 4, the goodness of God leads to repentance. So the more we get to know him, of course, yeah, I'm gonna, I, I, I need to get a grip on this driving stuff, but that's, I got more problems than just driving, okay, just to let you guys know. I have other issues that God's working with me on, trying to narrow that gap between my beliefs and my behavior. But the way that that's done is basking in the reality of his love for me. And so I don't repent to get his love I have his love, therefore I repent. So if you are going to persevere in perilous times, you must avoid godless and ungodly people. In other words, don't follow their lead or seek their advice. And by the way, that includes also, that would include like TV shows you watch, movies, blogs, magazines, talk shows. Our culture is swimming in self-absorption and self-centeredness. Here's the second thing that Paul tells Timothy, follow good mentors and models. So he makes this transition, he says, he says, avoid those people, but in verse 10, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, and my faith. So here's my question for you. It's a bit convicting, but who's pouring into your life and whose life are you pouring into? Who's pouring into your life and whose life are you pouring into? And, 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 and by the way, they need to be flesh and blood. I mean, it's good to read books by old dead theologians and... And, you know, to watch people on the screen, and there's a lot of good teaching out there, but you have to be careful even with that. There's some really bad teaching out there. But who's in flesh and blood pouring into your life, and then who are you pouring into also? Because that's really, really what he's talking about here. So you're, you're following the lead and seeking the advice of someone. So who, who is it? And who are you passing that on to? Sometimes when I say that, I've heard people say, I follow my own lead and seek my own advice. And I I always think of that proverb that says, a man who is his own lawyer or advisor has a fool for his client. (laughs) So the Christian life is a team sport. It's it's a family. It's why we encourage everyone here at Desert Breeze to get involved in a ministry with a ministry team or a small group. In fact, let me read what, uh, what Ricky uh, studied and helped us to walk through last week. Chapter 2, verse 2 of 2 Timothy. Listen to what he says to Timothy. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to fellow uh, to faithful men who will be able to teach others. Do you, do you hear this? So he's receiving... So he's receiving from, he's, he's following 
a good mentor and model in Paul, and so Timothy receives that. Now he's passing it on to others, and that, that's, the, that's the question. Listen to me. Anonymity and individualism will kill you spiritually, and that's rampant in the church culture today because it's rampant in American culture. Anonymity and individualism. Now let's talk about what good mentors and models look like, what we should look like as we are growing in our faith. They have a very little gospel gap. Next, fill in the blank. They have very little gospel gap. So what is that gospel gap? I kind of talked about it. Look what he says in verse 10. He's describing it here for us. You, however, have followed my teaching. So there's his teaching, what he says. But notice he also talks about what he does. So it's his beliefs and his behavior. There's a narrowing that's of that. So he says, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. So what this means is very little disparity between our, our lips and our life, our beliefs and our behavior. So there's very little disparity. There's, it doesn't mean that there isn't some disparity from time to time, but you're quick to correct that through repentance and come back and say, wait a minute, I'm not acting in a way that's consistent with how I believe. How do you narrow that gap? I put this on your, on your notes. This has been a helpful verse for me to help narrow that gap. Psalm 26.3, for your steadfast love is before my eyes. This is the psalmist. Your steadfast love is before my eyes. What are you focused on as you live out your life? He's saying God's steadfast love, his covenant love for me is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. So you see his belief, steadfast love, before my eyes, I'm always, I'm basking the reality of your love for me, and then therefore, I'm able to walk in your faithfulness. I'm able to walk a life that's consistent with who I am in you. Now think about this. As believers in Jesus Christ, because of what Christ has done for us, we have the wealth of his presence, the comfort of his love, the strength of his power, the significance of being called his child. We didn't earn that. Therefore, we can't unearn it. We just, we, we just go back to it and live in the reality of it. And when we see our behavior is inconsistent with, with someone that believes that, we just we come back to our beliefs and say, wait a minute, I'm obviously not really believing this at this moment because my behavior betrays me. My behavior shows me that. So that's why, for your steadfast love is before my eyes and I walk in your faithfulness. Here's the next, uh, next thing about follow good mentors and models. So they have very little gospel gap. So there's that narrowing of that gap. They don't use God but serve God. They don't use God but they serve God. Verse 11, you have followed my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I, I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued. Th that is crazy what he's saying here, because if you understand this story, you can go back to Acts and you can see what happened, what went down in this story. So he's just kind of alluding to it, because probably everybody knew this story here. While Paul was in these cities of Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the religious leaders riled up the crowd, stirred up the crowd in such a way that, because Paul was there preaching the gospel, they took Paul, they drug him out the city, and they stoned him and left him for dead. That's what he's talking about. And the Christians that were there rallied around him. He stood up, they dust, kind of helped him, dusted him off, and he went to another city and continued to preach the gospel. And then later on, he comes back to 
these cities, this Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, and encourage the Christians there and continue to proclaim the gospel with the same people that had just recently taken him out the city to kill him. That's amazing. So, so look at when he says this, I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. I'm thinking, he didn't rescue you from that. What, is, what are you talking about? You, you were, they threw rocks at you and left you for dead, and you're saying you endured it? I can understand that. You got back up and went, went on preaching. But the Lord rescued me? What is he talking about? I think he's actually giving us some really great insight on how to, how to face suffering, how to face difficulties, and how to look at difficulties. And I think what he's teaching us here as believers, and this is what you could take to the bank, whatever you're going through, whatever you're facing, whatever you're struggling with, I think Paul is trying to tell us that sometimes he calms the storm, and sometimes he calms his child in the storm. But either way, I'm not using God, but serving God. He calls the shots for my life, and I'm here to honor him. Now, why would, why would Paul say that? Well, elsewhere, Paul wrote Romans 14, 7 through 8. Listen to what he says. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we're the Lord's. See, see here, here's, and I know this is going to go contrary to if you've heard some really unhealthy teaching this is going to go against it because this is biblical, and some of what you might have heard is not biblical, but, but God doesn't exist to rubber stamp your agenda and give you what you want. Faith isn't giving God an assignment and then holding him to it. That's not faith. Faith is knowing that you exist to seek his agenda and to do what he wants because he created you and has bought you by his own blood and therefore you belong to him and you gladly surrender your life to him. That's what Paul's doing here. I mean, so when he says, when he says here, he says, I endured it yet from them all. The Lord rescued me. He knew the Lord hadn't let him down. The Lord was still with him even through the pain and suffering. I love it. That is amazing. And, and you can see from Paul, he's not using God, he's serving God. He's absolutely serving God. See, a user looks to God as a means, but a server looks to God as the glorious end. A server realizes that nothing they could ever, ever get from God, even a change in circumstances, could ever compare with having God and living for God and his glory. See, the difference is, is using God for, for my benefit versus God using me for others' benefit. Paul did not have a man-centered, by the way, there's a lot of man-centered preaching in America today. He didn't have a man-centered getting God to bend to us mentality. He had a very God-centered me bending to God. So how do you know if you are using God or serving God? Well, how do you respond to suffering? And that's the next point on your notes. They have a solid theology for suffering. I love how upfront the Bible is. Very much in touch with reality. Doesn't deny reality. Notice what he says. So in, in verse 10, he says, you, however, have followed my teaching and my conduct, verse 11, and my suffering. And then you don't see in the text where there's this asterisk, small print down at the bottom. Oh, by the way, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's not like small print somewhere. No, it's, it's right, in the, right in the text. He says, oh, indeed, 
This is reality. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Have you ever gotten a new device and you must agree with the terms and conditions? You guys know what I'm talking about? I know that Christians aren't supposed to lie, but does anyone take the time to read those 20 pages of small print that says that you have just given your soul to Apple or Google? I mean, none of us do, but God never buries the things, buries things in small print or hides the cost of following him. I, I, I uh, would spend my summers as a young boy up in Flagstaff with my grandma and grandpa Ford. My grandpa was a pastor of a church there in Flagstaff. And my grandma Ford would have us kids, uh, she would have every morning this daily bread promise box. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Little daily bread promise box. And so we'd pull out these promises and we would m- memorize them and talk about them. But for the life of me, I don't ever remember pulling this promise out of that daily bread promise box. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Praise God. I'm going to claim that promise. Let me read to you some verses in Scripture how open and upfront the Bible is as it relates to suffering. The context I was talking about there where Paul takes the beating and is left for dead. When they had preached, this is Acts 14, 21 through 22. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples. So he goes to another city, preached the gospel, makes many disciples. They returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. Listen to what he says. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Philippians 1.29, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. John 15.20, remember the word that I said to you, a servant, this is Jesus speaking, a servant is not greater than his master, and if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. 1 John 3.13, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. 1 Peter 4.12-13, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. James 1, 2 through 4, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or perseverance, and perseverance, let perseverance have its full work in you so that you may be perfect, complete, not lacking anything, maturity, growth, wholeness, as a result of trials, difficulties, pain, that's what he's saying. So let me ask you this. Do you have a solid theology of suffering? If you hang out here, you will. Believe me, we'll help you with that. In other words, I'm asking you, do you suffer well? Do you suffer well? Jesus didn't suffer so that we wouldn't suffer, but that when we suffer, we would suffer well. See, difficulties are are not difficulties are not an interruption to God's plan or a failure of God's plan 
but part of God's plan to make me, to make you more like him and to use you and I to put on display the power of the gospel. See, the problem is, is really our heart. It's, it's the heart. That's the problem. People think circumstances don't cause you to sin. They're where the sin of my heart gets revealed. It's not slower, fast drivers. It's actually my heart is being revealed and I should rejoice because God would love me so much to reveal what's going on in my heart so that I can run into his arms of love and let him continue to bring the change that I desperately need so that I can put on display more and more his beauty and glory so that many more would be attracted to him. And so what's the key to this, to suffering well. It's, it's in verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life, it's to live a godly life in Christ. First Timothy 6, 6, godliness with contentment is great gain, is mega wealth. Listen to me, whatever you go through, everybody look up here just for a minute. Whatever you go through, whatever you go through, whatever you go through, whatever you're going through right now, whatever you might go through in the future, the Bible says you're going to go through perilous times. You're going to go through such difficult times, you're going to want to throw in the towel. You want to give up. You might even want to try to medicate it in some way. And so when you, when you reach those times in your life, whatever you go through and whatever you give up to follow Christ is nothing. Listen to me. It's nothing compared to what you gain in him and knowing him and walking with him and enjoying him. That's what Paul's wanting us to understand. So if you're going to persevere in perilous times, you must avoid godless and ungodly people. Don't follow their lead or seek their advice and follow good mentors and models. And here's the third one. Immerse yourself in God's infallible and inspired word. Immerse yourself in God's infallible and inspired word. That's what we see. Look at verse 16a, first part of that. All scripture is breathed out by God. Have you ever been a place before, maybe kind of like here, the music's up too loud and you lean over to talk to somebody or they lean over to talk to you and as they talk, you can feel their breath on your cheek and hopefully they have good breath, okay? Or you're gonna be passing them a mint. Hey, here, you could probably use this right now. Could you not stay away? When it talks about, the, this is actually talking about the very breath of God, that all scripture, this is God's breath upon us. He's speaking to us. Oh my goodness. And, and, and some translations actually would translate that as in, inspired by God. And it doesn't mean that it's inspirational, though it is, but it means this. It's on your notes. Inspired means God worked through human personality to write what he wanted written. And so all Scripture is directly from the mouth of God. What Scripture says, God says. It is the personal active presence of God. Oh, my goodness tells us in Hebrews 4.12, God's word is alive and powerful. He's speaking to us, the God of the galaxies. When we open up his word, we're, we're interacting with him. He speaks to us. And then verse 17, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work, complete, mature, wholeness, holiness. The word infallible, it's on your notes, means incapable of error, never wrong, and thus absolutely trustworthy. That is the only uh, original document. So you have to read from a good translation. We, we read from a really good, solid translation, ESV. But it, did you notice this? As I transition and give you the last three kind of fill in the blanks here, let me just say this. I, I want you to get a, a sense of what we're reading each week. We study God's word. We love God's word here because we know it's God speaking to us week in and week out. But did you ever notice as you read through the gospels, the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, 
that Jesus would just say things and it would happen. I mean, Jesus speaks and it's done. You notice that? It's just, it's powerful. At the word of Jesus, sickness, death, and demons flee. At the word of Jesus, sinners are forgiven, prisoners are set free, souls are satisfied. In fact, it tells us in Hebrews 1.3, he upholds the universe by the word of his power, speaking of Jesus, speaking of God's word. I was thinking about that. Wouldn't that be great if we could do that and get work done that way? Like, house, be clean. Yard work, be done. Emails be read and replied to. Woohoo! But we can't, okay? But he can speak, and he can speak into our life. God's word is alive and powerful to bring healing, forgiveness, freedom, and satisfaction like you have never experienced before. And so, therefore, we need to learn it, love it, and live it. We need to learn it, love it, and live it. Three aspects of, our, of faith, really, as I described here. Faith is truth entering the head. That's learn it. Igniting the heart, that's love it. And out working through our hands, that's, that's live it. So here's the first one. Learn it. He says, verse 14, continue. Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. Abide, dwell, make your home in God's word. John 8, 31 and 32. If you continue in my word, this is what Jesus said, if you continue in my word, then you are really my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will do what? Set you free. Freedom. Learn it. Learn it. Memorize it. Meditate on it. And then love it, verse 15, he says, refers to it as the sacred, sacred, pertaining and consecrated to God to be devoutly revered, verse 15, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So as you open up God's word, you are not looking for life lessons as much as you are looking to get a glimpse of your Savior who can satisfy the deepest longing of your soul, to hear him speak to you. Matthew 4, 4, it says, man cannot live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Real quick, do this. We're almost finished. Turn to the people sitting around you and ask them this question. What is your favorite food or what is your favorite restaurant? Real quick, do that. Man, you guys really got excited there. I mean, you guys are amped up. You guys are already thinking about what you're going to eat, aren't you? Where are you going to go at the end of this? You're already thinking about it. Yeah, where are we going to go? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did I hear Burger King out there somewhere? I hope not. Man cannot live on Burger King alone. In fact, you probably can't even live on it, okay? So man cannot live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We become so preoccupied with how we're going to take care of our lives physically, which is good, but there's an inner part of you that needs to hear God. You need to interact with God, and you need to have a relationship with God to hear his voice. Oh, my goodness. I'm desperate to hear from him each and every day. Through his word and prayers, I interact with him. So, so I, I learn it. I love it. 
This is the attitude that we should have, Psalm 119, 103. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. So we're gonna learn it, love it, and then we're gonna live it. We're gonna live it, verses 16 through 17. As you notice in those verses, he talked about teaching, correction, reproof, and training. I don't know if it's on your notes, but this is teaching and correction is instructing in right beliefs. Reproof and training is instructing in right behavior. So as I study God's word, you can actually, that's a good way to study God's word. Is this telling me how to behave or how to believe? Now don't confuse the order of those because if it's telling you how to behave, the belief always precedes the behavior. Our behavior is out of whack. The, the behavior is the fruit of our lives. But the root of our lives is always our beliefs. And so if your behavior is out of whack, it's because your belief is out of whack. You've got to come back to your beliefs. What do you believe about who you are in Christ Jesus? And so that's what he's telling us, that that's what Scripture does. Verse 16, he says, it's profitable for, verse 17, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So the, scripture, the Scriptures are not an end in themselves, like you read them and you check them off the list. They are a means to an end. They are meant to, so that you can encounter, have an encounter with Christ and a transformation of your life through a recalibration of your beliefs and your behavior. So what are our beliefs? Here's our beliefs. We're forgiven. He's forgiven us of all of our sins. We're reconciled to God. We're adopted into his family as his child. We're lavished with his love. We're empowered by his Holy Spirit. We're guaranteed a place in heaven. That's just a short list of what we have. That's ours through Christ. And so what should be our behavior? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. That is what should flow out of that kind of belief. If you are going to persevere in perilous times, you must avoid godless and ungodly people, follow good mentors and models, and immerse yourself in God's infallible and inspired word. Darby and his uncle had stopped three feet short of one of the richest veins of gold in Colorado history. Darby vowed to never be a quitter again and went on to make millions in the insurance industry. <laughs> Galatians 6, 9, do not, do not grow weary in well-doing because in due season you will reap a harvest if you don't give up. Let's pray. So Father God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to us this morning. And as we are exhorted in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, help us to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him persevered the cross, endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He knows, he cares, he rules our lives. May Jesus be our motive, means, and ultimate end of our faith and perseverance, we pray in his beautiful and glorious name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Love you guys.